All right, two more. One for me, one for Carrie. Uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, Luke chapter 24 and Jesus's um, conversation with two men uh, on the road to Emmaus. I'll take a little bit different take this morning than I have in the past um, because I feel like this one is, is how to talk to people and how to talk to ourselves uh, and the perspective we need uh, about Jesus uh, when we talk to people. That's kind of the, the idea. Not necessarily the things that we say, but the perspective we have in the way that we say them. Uh, once again, as, uh, as has become tradition, I guess, four things, four things that I want to uh, keep our minds focused on uh, as we talk about how Jesus talked to people. Uh, the first thing, Jesus was always prepared to talk to people. Jesus was always prepared to teach, uh, being prepared to be interrupted uh, and, and have his life uh, to where he can interact uh, with other people. Different approaches are needed for different people in different situations. Uh, most of the effort this, this uh, morning is going to be on that third one, being rooted in God's word, and in particular a part of God's word, and then being rooted in love and, and compassion for others. It is more important that people see your love and your interest for them when you talk to them rather than the, they, you convince them that you are right and they are not. Um, the goal is not to be agreeable or to be nice. The goal is to transform people. Okay? Now, how Jesus uh, talked to the men on the road to Emmaus. This is probably the most lengthy, lengthy thing that I want to read um, since we've been discussing, but I like to, to read the whole thing and it's to give it some context, and then we'll touch on a few things about the story and then jump right into the, to the applications. Luke chapter 24, I'm going to start in verse 1. <clears throat> but on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they came to the tomb, bringing the spices which they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men suddenly stood near them in dazzling clothing. And as the women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living one among the dead? He is not here, but he is risen. Remember how he spoke to you while he was still in Galilee, saying that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and on the third day rise again. And they remembered his words and returned from the tomb and reported all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now there were Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and also the other women with them who were telling these things to the apostles. But the words appeared to them as nonsense and they would not believe them. But Peter got up and ran to the tomb, stooping in and looking. He saw the linen wrappings only. He went away to his home, marveling at what had happened. And behold, two of them were going that very day to a village named Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about all the things which, they, which had taken place. And while they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself approached and began traveling with them. But their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. And he said to them, what are, you, what are these words you are exchanging with one another as you are walking? And they stood still, looking sad. One of them, named Cleopas, answered and said to him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem and unaware of the things which have happened here these days? He said to them, What things? They said to him, The things about Jesus the Nazarene, 
who was a prophet mighty indeed, and word in the sight of God and all the people. And how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to the sentence of death, and they crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, it is the third day since these things have happened. But also some women among us amazed us. When they were in the tomb early in the morning and they did not find his body, they came and they had that they had, had saying, excuse me, saying that they had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it exactly as the women had also said. But him they did not see. He said to them, O foolish men and slow of heart, to believe in all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself and all the scriptures. And they approached the village where they were going, and he acted as though he was going farther. But they urged him, saying, Stay with us, for it is getting towards evening, and the day is now nearly over. So he went in to stay with them. When he had reclined at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it, and breaking it, he began giving it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to one another, Were not our hearts burning within us, that he was speaking to us on the road while he was explaining the scriptures to us? And they got up that very hour and returned to Jerusalem, and found gathered together the eleven and those who were with them, saying, The Lord has really risen and has appeared to Simon. They began to relate their experiences on the road and how he recognized them by breaking of the bread. So in summary here, we basically have that first Sunday uh, that Jesus was raised from the dead uh, in totality. It it happens that these men, uh, I I would suspect, start going very early in the morning and maybe around the same time that the women see that the tombstone rolled away because, you know, it's a seven-mile journey. And we know they take that seven-mile journey, and then they come back uh, to Jerusalem. So they travel a pretty good ways uh, in the span of a day. So we see uh, here this passage also four of the, uh, call it nine, nine to ten different appearances of Jesus uh, after, uh, after his resurrection. I want to focus firstly, uh, this one focus primarily on two main points uh, this morning. First, the foundation of the resurrection as as an historical event, as something that really happened. Uh, I looked up uh, a couple of things, uh, a couple of polls and surveys that are recent, recent enough to call them uh, relevant to this culture, uh, about what people believe uh, about the resurrection. I thought I'd show them here. This first one is from from England. Uh, So if you look at kind of what you're looking at is... Uh, different groups of people, the general public, those who are consider themselves Christians who would be in orange, and those who consider themselves active Christians, kind of in that, kind of in that gray bar. Um, the, the idea of the resurrection, the percentage of people who believe that the Bible talks about Jesus actually rising from the dead, active Christians, a third of them believe that it really happened. Okay, so just consider that uh, for a moment. Believe, um, so they believe some some version uh, of it actually happening. Now, now most of them, uh, I guess a, a little over half, believe that it actually happened, and a third of them uh, do not. 
Okay? Uh, this poll is from the United States. Uh, sometime earlier this year, uh, the question, Bible accounts of the physical bodily resurrection of Jesus are completely accurate and the, and the event actually occurred. You can see there's a, there's a distribution to people. It's not swinging one way uh, as, you would, as you would expect. And Americans uh, in the age of 18 to 34 are the least likely to agree uh, with that statement. So roughly 60% of so of those polled in that demographic uh, believe uh, that Jesus actually uh, was raised from the dead. Okay? Now there's, uh, I don't want to turn this into a, uh, you know, evidences for why Jesus raised, got, was raised from the dead, but I do want to linger on this point uh, for a little bit because I think it's, because uh, I think it's important. <clears throat> there, there's, there's alternatives uh, to, to uh, believing that Jesus actually bodily raised from the dead. And here, here's the one that I found as to be the most, the most common. Okay? If you take the Bible, and if you don't believe that Jesus physically rose from the dead, um, here's, here's the one that I felt that, that looked the most common after doing some, doing some research. We'll look at it and then talk about it a bit. So after Jesus died... So goes, the, uh, so goes the belief. He had such an impact on the disciples, the apostles, the followers, that they felt his presence with them even after they died. Um, like a, a, a legendary figure. And this feeling was so strong because of the things that he taught, how he taught, how he lived, that they felt... Uh, his presence and, and, and the, the, the stories that they, that they had about his life, they were just larger than life um, to them. And they, and they wrote them down. Did they really happen? Not necessarily. There are more larger than life uh, stories because he was larger than life. I'm going to read you a quote from a man named John Crossan. Uh, this is an article called The Power of Parable. How Fiction by Jesus Became Fiction About Jesus. Think, for example, of the Jerusalem to Jericho Road in the Good Samaritan and Jerusalem to Emmaus Road in which the incognito Jesus appears after the resurrection. Most everyone accepts the former one, the Good Samaritan story, Luke 10, as a fictional story with a theological message. But what about the latter one in Luke 24? The road to Emmaus story is a parable about loving and feeding a stranger as yourself and finding Jesus in that encounter. That was very clear to me. This is uh, John, uh, John Crossan. Decades ago, and I summed up the ancient Christian intention and modern Christian meaning of that parable by saying that Emmaus never happened. Emmaus always happens. That is... By way, an introductory definition of a, of a parable, a story that never happened, but always does, or at least it should. Everybody kind of understand what he's saying? He's saying that, the, the, think about the parable of the Good Samaritan. It didn't really happen, but it should always happen. Loving your neighbor, treating those with kindness who you should see. The road to Emmaus never happened. It should always happen. Um, seeing people, interacting with them, and taking them into their, to your house to feed them. Look at the higher truth of the story, just like the Good Samaritan. Don't seek the history of it. Okay? That's the idea. Now let's break it down. Uh, and again, I don't want to spend the, the whole time because my second point is, to me, a little more uh, primary than the first. 
but this one is 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 just as uh, just as relevant. We'll talk a little bit about um, some of the problems that I personally have with that belief, and then I want to get uh, your your thoughts uh, your thoughts as well. Um, some of the details in this story, as written, are not necessary and not written uh, like a parable, uh, and they don't they're not written to seek uh, the influence. Uh, that a parable would seek. You may have heard this kind of thing in the past. I don't want to dive, again, a whole lot into, into the depth of it, but I want to talk about a few things uh, that are relevant. First of all, if you look at this story coupled with the resurrection story, who are the first witnesses of the resurrected body uh, in Luke chapter 24? Who are the first ones to, to witness that, that the resurrection has taken place, that the body is gone? It's a series of women. Now, why is that relevant? Good Bible students, uh, people who know the culture of the day, why is that, uh, why is that relevant or irrelevant, um, to, to say it another way? Well, sometimes their testimony would not be taken seriously. Right. In the culture, not, not saying this is right. In the culture of the day, the, the testimony or, or something like this coming from, from women would not have been seen as, as credible. So if you want a mythical story, uh, a, 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 a legendary story to be true, you're going you're gonna to go uh, a, a different way. The only reason that, that this part of, of the story being there makes sense is if this really happened. Um, and, and again, I don't want to launch into this a whole bunch, but the, this, the idea of this style of writing matches the style of writing of eyewitness testimony versus the same kind of a mythical writing or, or legendary writing uh, of the day. And an easy example is all the names that are mentioned. Verse 10, the list of names. Verse 18, the name of Cleopas. Uh, you, you don't have names of people in parables. The Good Samaritan doesn't have a name. Uh, the innkeeper where he goes to doesn't have a name. Uh, the the priest who he who passes the man by doesn't have a name. These men have these men and these women uh, have names. And if you look just again briefly at, at, at research, the idea of having names in here uh, in the historical events are, are seen as sort of as footnotes and verification opportunities. Go and talk to this man. Go and talk to these people uh, about about what happened. Uh, and the last comment I'd, I'd make about this story is not only this story, but the other stories about the resurrection, is think about how it changed the lives of the people involved in the early church, and, and even Paul um, for that instance. The early church did not arise and mature based on the, the, the resurrection being a story like the Good Samaritan, uh, like a, 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 a good story that gives us a good kind of meaning and, and we go in and we, we talk to people about it. You know, Paul, for example, um, you, you can take him as a, kind of the extreme example. Uh, growing up under Pharisee training, rejecting the idea that the church was anywhere close to the fulfillment of, of Jewish history, persecuting those who dared to think so, and then what happened? He saw the resurrected Jesus, and it didn't matter what his training taught him to believe. The resurrection was, was real to him. It was real to him. So the first, the first point I'm trying to drive home this morning 
is when it comes to uh, the perspective that people need, we have to remind ourselves of the perspective that we have to have when talking to people and being ambassadors of Christ. The resurrection really happened. It really happened. Okay? Any other thoughts on that, the comments that I've made before? I'm going to jump to 1 Corinthians 15. It feels like obligatory um, reference here in a second. But any, anything else about what I've mentioned here uh, about this story? Go, go to uh, 1 Corinthians 15 uh, for a second. I mean, we could, we could obviously spend a lot of the time and the rest of the time here. Um, but is the resurrection, when we talk to people, when we worship, is the resurrection real to us? Uh, is it real to me? Is it real to you? 1 Corinthians 15, uh, we could go a lot of places. Let's just look at verses 13 and 14. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain. And your faith, <clears throat> excuse me, your faith is also in vain. Um, when we talk to people about how they may have problems with certain things in the Bible or um, they're not, they're not uh, pleased with the Bible, what the Bible says or maybe we're not pleased with what the Bible says about a certain topic, about you know, maintaining sexual purity, maintaining a marital commitment, sharing of your possessions, honoring the rulers of your government, praying continuously, being an active member of a local church, you know, on and on. Um, there may be something in the Bible that, 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 that bothers us or we don't like or is restrictive or is culturally regressive or, or, or something like that. Um, there are times that the Bible calls us to do something difficult and we don't like it. But, but what I get from 1 Corinthians 15 is if Jesus is raised from the dead, you have to deal with all that. You can't just say, well, I don't like what that says. Again, take back, back to Paul, you know, for, for, for example. What Christians believed and what they taught didn't make any sense to Paul up to the point where he was willing to assist in their death, assist in their killing. And he saw the risen Jesus, and he had to deal with that. He had to deal with that. It didn't matter what his background was. It didn't matter what his environment was. Didn't matter who he talked to. He had to, he had to deal with it, and he had to change uh, because of it. When we talk to people, no matter what scenario, like the, maybe just a handful that Carrie and I have addressed uh, this this quarter, um, we have to start with ourselves. And do we see the tremendous value of the resurrected body of Jesus? We see the value of his birth. We see the value of his life. We even see the value of his death. What about uh, the value and the validity of his resurrection? Is it real to you? If it's not, the way and the influence that we have when we talk to people uh, can, be, uh, can be incomplete. That's my first kind of main thrust point. Any comments on, on that? If he's not raised, he's not the Lord. Yeah, that's right. If he's not the Lord, then he's not the master of our lives. And then we make our decisions based upon that. Yeah, that's right. That's right. I mean, you go back to 1 Corinthians 
First Corinthians 15. If you, if you, uh, so for, for those who maybe didn't hear uh, David, if he's not raised, uh, he's not the Lord. Like look at the word that's used in verse 14. And if Christ has not been raised, what's Christ mean? What's that? Anointed one. Anointed one, ruler, king, but Messiah. It's not that if the teacher has not been raised, then your, your faith is vain. Or excuse me, your preaching is vain. Your faith is also in vain. It doesn't mean the teacher. It's the Christ. Um, he gets that title one way. Only one way. By conquering death and being raised from the dead. We have to believe it. We have to make that real, real to us. Because it may not be real to some, and we can't talk to people properly uh, about any part of life if we don't believe and make real the bodily resurrection of Jesus. Anybody else? Yes, sir. The the difficulty, I think, in, in talking to the unchurched is convincing them that the resurrection did occur, as you've kind of pointed out in these statistics. Mm-hmm. And, and if it did occur, then then we have to deal with the consequences of that, right? Right. But um, there there is evidence both inside the Bible and outside the Bible mm-hmm. that the body of Christ disappeared. You know, there, there's really not any disputing that disappeared from the tomb. Uh, the Pharisees and Sadducees said, "Well, you know, it was stolen by the disciples." Of course, that makes no sense because the disciples would have had to, under the cover of darkness, overpower these Roman soldiers who were, or not, whatever the soldiers were that were guarding the tomb, then roll the tomb back, and then do something with the body and nobody could find it mm-hmm. for hundreds or thousands of years, right? So, sure. But then there's also the credibility of witnesses. You know, the New Testament wasn't written by a single author. There were many different authors, many different witnesses. Right here in 1 Corinthians 15, right at the beginning, it says that Jesus appeared to Cephas. Mm -hmm. Of course, we we talked about the two on the road to Emmaus. He he appeared to the 12, and then there were over 500 witnesses. Mm -hmm. At, At the time this letter was written, there would still have been people alive who were witnesses of this event. Mm-hmm. and would easily have been able to have disputed it and discredited this letter early on. So that's the proof. Yeah, I mean, I think, I don't remember who was preaching at the time, but I heard a preacher one, one time say that, that Christianity is the only religion that leaves you an out. If you can find the body of Jesus, it's it. It's over. No other religion leave, leaves you that out. You find it, I won't believe anymore. Um, and I think that's the point. I think that's kind of the point of 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, go go and talk to all these people um, as well. It's a good point, David. All right. Let's, um, let's go to my second kind of drive-on point. Rooted in God's word, a point that I made time and time again, has to mean rooted in the resurrected Jesus. For the men on the road, let's answer this question together. For the men on the road, what were their... Assumptions. What were their assumptions about Jesus? What, what did they What did they say about him? Sorry. Okay, he's dead. Good. What else about him? He was lying to the Pharisees. 
He was going to redeem Israel. Okay. What else about him did they know? Verses uh, 18 through 21 or so. He was a prophet. So he taught mighty indeed, did things great, talked about things that were great in the sight of God, did them publicly, taken over, and he was dead. And they thought uh, he was going to redeem Israel. It's such a, such a great kind of exchange there from like verse 18 through verse uh, 27 or so. And verse 20 and 21, he was crucified. And we thought he was going to redeem Israel. You know, the Messiah is supposed to speak with authority and teach on the kingdom of God and be exalted and be anointed by God and crush his enemies. And Jesus was so close to being that person. Um, and he was crucified. Now following him, following him doesn't make any sense. And what was Jesus' response to that? Don't you realize this was supposed to happen? Um, verse uh, 26. Um, what, what if everything that you just said to man on the road to Emmaus is true and he raised from the dead? Oh. What if everything you said is exactly right and he raised from the dead? Then the God who does love him and anointed him is pleased with him. Because he's led him to conquer death. Well, then why did he die? Why was he cursed and why was he abandoned? It wasn't for Jesus then. Who was it for? I think that's a really, really broad summary of what Jesus does over the next, you know, I don't know how long it takes to walk seven miles, but for the next few hours maybe, um, explaining to them, uh, explaining to them the scriptures. Uh, key point here, when we talk to people about a story or a principle in the Bible, it has to at some point and in some way lead back to Jesus. Otherwise, that part of the Bible is incomplete in how we apply it and how we read it. You can't read, you have to read the entire Bible with that context uh, in mind. You can't see the Bible any different way. You think of a um, think of a movie, maybe that you've seen, and you're walking, you're watching the movie, and at the end, you didn't see the end coming. Um, something happened. Somebody was hidden. Somebody who wasn't who they they truly were. Um, the, the the one that came to my mind when I was thinking about this. I don't know how many people have seen the Sixth Sense, uh, but but the the, I, the 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 Sixth Sense. If you haven't seen it. Um, the main character's dead at the end. Spoiler. So you, you can't see that movie two times the same way. Because you see it one way, and at the end you're like, oh, wait a second. This is way different. And you go back and watch it again, and you see hints and clues and uh, Easter eggs that are kind of hidden through the story. Like, oh, yeah, that makes sense the whole time. Same for these men, I think. You have a... You have a way of looking at the Bible, a way of looking at what they call the, the scriptures or the prophets, Moses. And, and Jesus spends, it had to have been a long time, uh, talking to them about it. And what's the end result? Uh, verse 32, their hearts are, are burning when he was explaining the scriptures to us. 
because everything is just like opened up and it's all different now. Well, it's all different now. Um, when we talk to people, when we use the Bible even uh, to talk to people, um, we have to find Jesus in all of it. I'm not saying that like push yourself to find Jesus in, in every single verse, like in Genesis, when it talks about the genealogies, what's this person's name mean and how that applies to Jesus. I'm not, not saying that. I'm saying every theme, every character, every storyline, every principle has to trace back to him. Um, has to trace back to, to him as the Christ. When we talk to people, that has to be uh, the way that it is. Basic stories have to become big stories. So, let's go through a couple of examples. So, Cain and Abel, the basic story, when sin comes to you, you got to fight it. you got to master it. Um, what's the big story there? Cain isn't dead. Cain still has hope. And he still has somewhat of protection. Jesus died for the curse of Cain. Seeing this will help us to lose resentment, hate only the sin, and have an opportunity to escape because we know who we're escaping to. Okay? Now we're going to go through a bunch of examples. I wrote out a bunch of examples to kind of get you thinking uh, along this way. And then as we go, I want you to think of a couple examples uh, as well. Um, I tried to leave all the ones out of the book of Hebrews to give you a few easy ones uh, to jump to uh, as at the end. So the Tower of Babel story. Genesis chapter 11. What's the, the, the basic story? Man's pride has caused them to build a city and proclaim, this is how we're, we're going to show how great we are. And as a result, the world is divided. And, and that's it. We're left in that story with a problem. The world is divided, and there's no, there's no way of figuring out how to unify it again. Sin is a problem. That's basic. If you just look at the summary of Genesis 1 through 11, sin is a problem. And this is all the kinds of ways that it's a problem. Genesis 11, one of the ways that sin is a problem is it divides us. It divides us by the things that we say and the words that we use. What's the big story there? How does Jesus solve that? In Matthew 28, end of Matthew 28, Jesus says, go into all the world, Right? Go and preach to all the nations. Go and correct the problem that was started in the Tower of Babel. And how does it start to get corrected in Acts chapter 2? What does Peter do? Common language. He uses words that everybody, no matter what they speak, say from the Tower of Babel, they can understand. Men divide themselves God divides them by the way, the way that they use words. How does Jesus solve it? His resurrection and his work there ascends to heaven, brings the Holy Spirit, and how is it immediately brought to the world to bring them together in the language that they were once divided in? Nothing can divide us anymore. The things that divided us in Genesis chapter 11 are solved in Jesus in Acts chapter 2. Got with me? Okay, I'm not going to do this one. You're going to do this one. David, uh, oh, let me, let, me, um, let me do a, a one that's not up there. Old Testament worship. Old Testament worship. Leviticus chapter 1, for example, the burnt offering. 
What does the burnt offering have to be? Somebody summarize that for me. Pure lamp, the best. Summary of the worship in, in, in Leviticus is you got to have your best. You know, Deuteronomy chapter 6. Love God with all your heart. Give everything to God. Telling, uh, worshiping God requires your very best. Okay? That's what the story of, of the law, of, of the worship sections of the law of Moses uh, tell me. Why does God deserve our very best in worship? Tie that to the big story. What has he done? God gave his best. Right. God came himself and gave everything. God gave himself and came and gave everything in order that we may have the opportunity to worship. So we don't worship so we can gain points or get credit for something. We worship and provide our God our very best because we recognize that he came to here, this place, when he didn't have to. And gave his very best. Up to the point of giving his life. With me so far? David and Goliath. Okay, David and Goliath. 1 Samuel 17. What's the, the, basic, the basic story? Stand up and face the giants in your life. I read this uh, one time. When a Goliath is in front of you, remember there's a David inside of you. Much of what we consider valuable in our world arises... From, from lopsided conflicts, and we can face them with overcoming odds and, great, and, be, and be great and, and be better because of it. So stand up. When you see a giant in front of you, remember there's a David inside of you. That's, yeah, that's a basic story. Uh, if you just look at it, stand alone. If you tie it to the big story, what does the David and Goliath story become? Why do you help me? With Christ living in you, you own sure. With Christ, right? Which character are you in the story of David and Goliath? You're the scared guy on the hill, right? Oh. You can't defeat the giant by yourself, but if you get a David who can come in and, and not only assist not only help you swing a sword, but can come in and say, I got it. The biggest giants that you can possibly face, the law, sin, and death, I've conquered all of them. Uh, victory, uh, victory can come when we know we have been substituted for. Um, and we can help to fight our own battles, our battles against our own personal sin, and help others uh, fight their battles as well. Not because we're big, big or bad because we've learned to throw a stone, because someone has been doing that for us and has substituted there on our behalf. Got another one. Elijah and the prophets of Baal. 1 Kings uh, 18. The basic story, Elijah wins because he is on God's side and God is big. <clears throat> and Baal, not big. When it comes to the big story, answer, answer this question. Why does God listen to Elijah's request without Elijah having to cut himself or, or perform some great moral act? How does that show the difference between God and, and so Baal? It shows the greatness of God where Baal was nothing. That's right. Baal has human qualities. Responds to human requests, theoretically. Uh, in the 1 Kings 18, he comes a bit short. 
But he responds, and God is not like that. Would the shedding of Elijah's blood merited anything with God? It's not required in the story. God uh, does not need the shedding of Elijah's blood. He is powerful enough to bring the sacrifice and bring the power. Um, and, he, and we know that he is in the, just in the New Testament story because we do not have to shed our own blood because he's come and shed his own blood on our behalf. The lamb's blood um, of Jesus. God is big, that's right. But also means that we don't have to do anything to keep God being big. We don't have to, like, bail, cutting ourselves, shouting at him to wake him up. God is big and will act regardless of how we feel about him. He will come and save us and show his power regardless of how we react. How do you know? Because he came at a time when his people were rebelling and died for them. And died for them. All right? Uh, Last one that I've got. And I'll open the floor. The Good Samaritan. Let's go back to that one. The Good Samaritan story. We should take care of people who don't expect to be taken care of, even at the risk of discomfort or at the risk of cost to ourselves. You can read that, stand alone, and be okay. But it's incomplete. When you think about Jesus being raised from the dead and Jesus dying for us, how does the story of the Good Samaritan change? How does it change? greatest injury is what was done by sin and to heal that person is what is needed right you think of what it means to be uh, beaten on a road by robbers yes Um, but and it takes a lot to risk the, the life to save that person who was on the road an unexpected savior comes along and takes his own life To save a a man or a woman who would have expected or would have deserved the opposite. Jesus doesn't just risk his life. He gave his life to solve the biggest problem we would need rescue from. Not robbers on the side of the road to Jericho. But sin. When we recognize that. We recognize that Jesus didn't just take a risk. He went all the way in. And gave his life for us. When it comes to loving our neighbor. If we know that Jesus did that for us. And we act. And we talk to people with that in mind. The better we will be. At loving our neighbor. Any, um, any other examples. Of what I'm talking about. Uh, that come to mind. Again. The idea is. If we don't see it, a story in the Bible. With Jesus in it. That story is incomplete. I think that's one of the goals of what Jesus was telling the man when he talked to them in Luke chapter 24. Any other examples? Melchizedek. One other example, that's, yep. as you were saying, uh, each of these stories that are, have been preserved by God, you know, that's the point. These are stories that God wants us to to know and, and know more deeply than just than just the events that transpired. There is a lesson here uh, that uh, affects us even in the 21st century. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, if you look, if you look at uh, verse uh, 27, beginning with Moses, this is uh, Luke 24, the beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself and all the scriptures. They would have known these stories, but the story itself, yeah, I got it. But now meaning it's explained it uh, in light of the resurrection. Every story in the Bible we have is on purpose. It's, it's the summary in my mind of what David was trying to say. Everything we have is on purpose. Um, and, and the driven home purpose that Jesus talks to these men about in Luke 24 is the Messiah you're looking for. The things that you just saw on Friday, they were real and they had to happen to the man that you claim could have redeemed Israel. Okay? If you're looking for another Messiah, you don't need one. Let me tell you what Moses was talking about, what David was talking about, Obadiah, Elijah, Malachi, all of them were talking about me. They were talking about me. And, and uh, their reaction, I think their reaction is, is just a, that we should take to heart too. Verse 32, uh, realizing that their hearts have burned within them. Their hearts burn within them. Um, any other comments on that? Yeah. I think in an essence to sort of cover a lot of what we've talked about this morning is the evidence is there. The evidence is there. It's those who choose to see the evidence for what it is will believe. And those who don't, won't. And there are those, and you know, this is even evident, this is very clear in our day and time today. There are those out there trying to paint a different narrative to cause you not to believe. Mm-hmm. And Satan is that one trying to paint that different narrative because the evidence is, is there and it's overwhelming when you actually look at it. But those who choose not to look at the evidence or to ignore it, those are the ones who don't truly believe, but the ones who do, do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, th- I think Nate is spot on. And what, what our job is when we talk to people is to try and help whatever, the, remember, whatever the case, whatever the circumstances, you've got to take different approaches, but the backbone has to be our perspective uh, about the resurrection and uh, correspondingly how we want them to see uh, that perspective, uh, that perspective too. Man, that time went really fast. I'm not going to read this uh, quote. It's in the uh, section uh, in, in the slides, obviously. It was written by John Calvin, and he basically just made the point that we tried to drive home. Um, he said it um, you know, 500 some odd years ago. Talking to people about the wrong perspective on God's word turned them to Jesus. When we talk to people about the wrong perspective on God's purpose, we turn them to hope. Um, they saw the right qualities in Jesus. Um, Jesus could redeem Israel. Um, and, and Jesus is confirming to them when he talked to them, yes, uh, yes, I can. The key point to one of the, la- the last key point I would say about the road to Emmaus is the way people encounter the risen Christ is through the words that are written about him in the word of God. That's the point. I think Jesus is trying to drive home when he talks to them about the scriptures, starting with Moses all the way through the prophets. There is not a need to encounter 
the resurrected Jesus by having a personal encounter like these men did, like the apostles did, like Paul does. The point that Jesus is trying to make is say, look, you can encounter, you can see this story. You can see the resurrection. You can see what the Messiah means through the stories that are provided for you. Everything in the Bible is on purpose. And that purpose is to lead us to the resurrected Jesus. Last thing that I would, I would appeal to you, and I'll let Carrie close the class this, this next week. I really appreciate your comments, your bearing with the discussion. The last thing I'd say, I want to linger on something that Nate, I think, mentioned last week. When we talk to people, at some point, it has to become a testimony. And in that case, well, if we're going to use Jesus' words or how we talk to, Je- talk to people about Jesus, find the thing that Jesus said that is your favorite, that resonates with you the most. Um, use that. Uh, mine is Matthew 11 uh, and verse 28. Um, coming to the, come to me, all you who are weak and heavy laden. The idea of restlessness and weariness and being tied and yoked to something is something that we all struggle with, even myself. And Jesus says, uh, look, you can be tired and broken and restless. Come to me, yoke yourself with me, because I can be your replacement. At some point, find the thing that that, that resonates to you as a testimony to you. When we talk to people, uh, no matter the circumstance, help that to resonate with them. All right. Thank you very much.